Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy these classic episodes from the TDI HC Vault. I'm currently researching a new crop of stories for next year, so be sure to join me again on January 2nd when we return with all new episodes. See you next week. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christopher Hasiotis. Your regular host, Tracy V. Wilson, is out this week, so thanks for having me. It's December 10th, and one of the biggest heists in Japanese history happened on this day in 1968. Just under 300 million yen was stolen from a secure vehicle outside Tokyo. In 1968, that amount was worth around 820,000 U.S. dollars. Adjusted for inflation, that'd be like stealing the equivalent of $6 million in today's money. Here's how it all went down. On December 10th, four employees of the Nihon Shintaku Ginkgo Bank were transporting this massive sum of cash. Security was tight as a bank manager had just days prior received threats of explosives in the mail. The money was intended to be used as bonuses for factory workers employed by technology conglomerate Toshiba. The vehicle was traveling through Fuchu, the city in the greater metro area of Tokyo where the factory was located. A policeman riding a white Yamaha motorcycle stopped the car, just about a block's distance from the factory gate. The policeman informed the crew in the car that their bank manager's house had been bombed, and police had reason to believe the car they were driving was likewise wired with dynamite. As the four employees exited the car, the policeman said he'd examined the underside of the vehicle. While beneath the car, he discreetly set off a flare. The four employees saw smoke and flames, and when they heard the man, whom they believed to be a policeman, yelling for them to run for safety, that's exactly what they did. He, on the other hand, hopped in the car loaded with cash and just drove off. The vehicle was later discovered abandoned without either the cash or the driver within. The ensuing investigation saw the Japanese police go all in. More than 170,000 police officers and hundreds of detectives were involved in the search for the thief. 
Police collected more than 120 pieces of evidence at the crime scene, including the thief's abandoned police motorcycle, which turned out to have been painted to look official, but wasn't. The security employees described the culprit, sketches were made and circulated, and the hunt was on. More than 100,000 people were interviewed in 1968 for the case. The first suspect was the 19-year-old son of a motorcycle policeman, but just five days after the robbery, the teenager died of potassium cyanide poisoning, raising suspicions. The death, however, was ultimately ruled a suicide, and he wasn't implicated. A year later, at the end of 1969, police arrested a 26-year-old man on an unrelated charge. He resembled the composite image created of the thief, but he too was ultimately exonerated when he was able to prove he was taking a test at the time of the robbery. On November 15, 1975, just months before the seven-year statute of limitations was set to expire, police arrested a friend of the 19-year-old first suspect. They'd found large amounts of unexplained cash in his possession. In the end, nothing came of that inquiry either, and the statute of limitations on criminal charges was reached in December of 1975. A separate period of civil liability expired in 1988. After that date, the thief would not have been at risk of any legal repercussions. He could legally benefit from profits from the crime. He could have written a book, for instance, or sold his story to a TV station. A 1999 investigation by the newspaper Shukan Hoseki identified a potential suspect then in his 50s. However, other publications found significant flaws with that theory, and it was ultimately abandoned. As of the recording of this episode, half a century later, the case remains unsolved. The culprit has never come forward, and the money remains lost. For years, it was the largest robbery in Japan's history. Most recently, it was surpassed by a 2004 robbery of 500 million yen, which was then surpassed by a 2011 robbery where two masked men stole 604 million yen, or about $7.4 million. But the 1968 robbery, the 300 million yen robbery as it's known, remains the most notorious in the public's memory. The original crime has inspired numerous books, articles, comics, and TV shows, as well as the 2000 film San Oku and Jiken. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever else you like to find your podcasts. Come back tomorrow and we'll learn about a royal trial. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better, your TV is. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content... 
you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was December 10th, 1907. The Brown Dog Riots, a series of riots over the practice of conducting surgery on live animals, peaked when a crowd of medical students marched through London in support of the practice. Operating on living animals for experimental purposes is known as vivisection. Vivisection, used for scientific research and instructing medical students, was common in the UK in the early 20th century. At the same time, there was plenty of opposition to the practice. Anti-vivisection groups formed and attempted to limit or abolish surgery on live animals. Among other arguments, people who opposed vivisection accused researchers of disregarding the suffering of the animals they experimented on. Many anti-vivisectionists were also suffragists. In 1876, Parliament passed the Cruelty to Animals Act, which said that experiments that caused animals pain could only be conducted when necessary and that animals had to be anesthetized if they were to undergo such an experiment. It also required animals to be used in only one experiment and killed when the study was over, with stipulations. But in 1902, a brown terrier was anesthetized and dissected alive by physiologist Dr. Edward Starling in front of an audience of medical students at University College in London. The dog lived through the experiment and was kept in a cage until his next procedure. In February of 1903, the terrier was used in a couple more procedures conducted by Starling, another physiologist named William Bayliss, and medical student Henry Dale. The dog was cut open to inspect the results of the previous experiment, and the dog's neck was cut open to expose its salivary glands. The experiment was not successful, and Dale killed the dog by stabbing a knife through his heart. Two Swedish anti-vivisectionist activists, Lizeline of Hagaby and Lisa Hartau, were attending medical school in London and had been going to see Starling and Bayliss's lectures. They published their notes on the experiments on and death of the brown terrier. Since the dog was used in more than one experiment, the procedures were in violation of the Cruelty to Animals Act. Lawyer Stephen Coleridge publicly decried the vivisection of the brown terrier, and Bayliss sued Coleridge for libel. They went to trial in November of 1903, and Bayliss came out on top. But the controversy continued. Anti-vivisectionists raised money to build a monument to the dog that was killed in the experiment. The memorial was unveiled in the borough of Battersea in September of 1906. The plaque on the statue of the brown dog read, in memory of the brown terrier dog done to death in the laboratories of University College in February 1903. After having endured vivisection extending over more than two months and having been handed over from one vivisector to another till death came to his release. Also, in memory of the 232 dogs vivisected at the same place during the year 1902, men and women of England, how long shall these things be? 
This upset medical students who supported animal experimentation and vivisection. Their efforts to destroy the statue turned into riots, which peaked on December 10, 1907, when medical students gathered to try to take the memorial down. The protests devolved into fighting with police officers, and rioting continued over the next several months. After much debate over the statue, which not only inspired rioting, but also required official resources for protection, the statue was taken down in March of 1910. It's been suggested that the conflict was intensified by the fact that so many of the medical students were men who opposed suffrage, and so many of the anti-vivisectionists were women and suffragists. A new, also controversial statue of the dog was unveiled in London in 1985. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Looking for content a little more sophisticated than cat memes in your feed? Connect with us on social media at TDIHC Podcast. If you prefer something a little bit more formal, then you can write us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I hope you liked this show. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality, high quality and immersive sound, a sleek design. All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. And welcome to This Day in History class, a show for those interested in the loud and quiet moments of history. I'm Gabe Lusier, and today we're looking at the life of one of the most enigmatic poets in literary history, the incomparable Emily Dickinson. The day was December 10th, 1830. American poet Emily Dickinson was born in Amherst, Massachusetts. Although largely unrecognized in her own time, she is now considered one of the most dynamic and innovative poets of the 19th century, and a pillar of the American literary canon. Only a handful of her poems were published during her lifetime, but she wrote prolifically, 
penning nearly 1,800 poems on themes such as faith, death, nature, truth, and loss. Emily Elizabeth Dickinson was born into a prominent New England family. Her paternal grandfather, Samuel Dickinson, was a founder of the esteemed Amherst Academy, now Amherst College. Her father, Edward Dickinson, was a trustee at Amherst, as well as a lawyer and a state legislator. In 1828, Edward married Emily Norcross, and the couple had three children together, the eldest, William Austin, the middle child, Emily, and the youngest, Lavinia. Given the family's background, Dickinson's father was adamant that his children receive a quality education. When she was ten, Emily and her sister were enrolled in Amherst, a rigorous school that had only started accepting female students two years earlier. By all accounts, Dickinson was an exceptional student and had no problem with a challenging curriculum that included classical literature, history, sciences, and philosophy. After seven years at Amherst, Dickinson enrolled at the Mount Holyoke Female Seminary in South Hadley, Massachusetts. The school followed a similar classical curriculum, but also included teachings on evangelical Christianity. Dickinson spent less than a year at the boarding school and left for unknown reasons. Some historians think her father wanted her to return home, while others believe she disliked the school's oppressive religious atmosphere and teaching style. Whatever the reason, Dickinson returned to her family estate at age 18 and remained there, growing gradually more reclusive throughout her 20s and 30s. Although she increasingly avoided in-person social interactions, she maintained frequent correspondence with a wide circle of friends, at least 90 people that we know of. She had begun writing poetry as a teenager and often enclosed poems in her letters. Much of her work was influenced by her upbringing in Puritan New England during a time of sweeping religious reform. Although she attended church routinely until her 30s, Dickinson went against religious norms of her era and refused to conform to an orthodox view of Christianity. In private, she wrestled with the notions of belief and unbelief throughout her life, often grappling with the inevitability of death and the possibility of an afterlife. Dickinson's early 30s were the most creatively productive years of her life. It's believed she wrote more than 700 poems in the five-year span between 1861 and 1865. This tremendous output corresponds with her gradual withdrawal from society. The less time she spent in the restrictive outside world, the more time she had to explore her inner world through writing. One of her poems from 1862 suggests that her withdrawal was deliberate and that every person does something similar when choosing which friends and relatives to share their life with. Like all of her works, the poem is officially untitled and is typically referenced by its first line. It reads as follows. The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door. To her divine majority, present no more. Unmoved, she notes the chariots pausing at her low gate. Unmoved, an emperor be kneeling 
upon her mat. I've known her from an ample nation. Choose one. Then close the valves of her attention like stone. It was during this isolated period of experimentation that Dickinson developed her unique style of writing, including the unusual punctuation, syntax, and line breaks that make her work so distinctive, as well as open to multiple interpretations. Today, Dickinson is widely known for her fascination with death, grief, and loss, as expressed in famous poems such as Because I Could Not Stop for Death, and I heard a fly buzz when I died. This preoccupation with mortality came to the forefront in the 1860s, but it was present even in her earliest work. At age 14, Dickinson endured her first major loss when her friend and cousin died of typhus. During her late teens and early 20s, Dickinson suffered the deaths of several more friends and family members. This string of tragedies underlined what would become a lifelong exploration of what it means to die and of how to live with the deaths of those you love. That said, Dickinson didn't dwell exclusively on death. Her poetry is often playful and funny, using satire and irony to dress down accepted customs and institutions. She also studied botany and kept a vast garden of herbs and plants. Because of this passion, her poems feature a lot of floral and garden imagery and frequently extol the beauty and mystery of the natural world. Dickinson never married nor had children. Although she had many male admirers, it's widely believed that she carried a torch for Susan Gilbert, her lifelong friend turned sister-in-law and next-door neighbor. By the time Dickinson was 40, she rarely left the family homestead. Her seclusion has led to rampant speculation from both scholars and readers alike. Some have suggested that she suffered from agoraphobia, the fear of crowds in public places, while others point to her family responsibilities, including the care of her ailing mother and younger sister. Of course, it's also possible that Dickinson lived with severe anxiety, perhaps brought on by the sense of difference she felt between herself and the world outside her door. In any event, the poet remained at her family home until her death on May 15, 1886, at the age of 55. Although she had regularly sent poems and closed-in letters to friends, fewer than a dozen had been professionally published at the time of her death. The handful that had made it to print were edited and altered to quote-unquote correct the poet's unusual form and syntax. Following her death, Dickinson's family discovered 40 hand-bound volumes containing 1,775 poems. The poet had assembled these booklets, known as fascicles, by folding and sewing together a few sheets of stationery at a time. The handwritten pages contained what appeared to be final versions of her poems, complete with her intended punctuation, spelling, line breaks, and syntax. The first collection of her work was published posthumously in 1890, and sadly it removed the majority of her aesthetic choices in favor of those of the editor. Since that first publication, 
Dickinson's poetry has never gone out of print, though a complete collection of her poems in their intended form wasn't released until the 1990s. The strength of her talent, coupled with her unique voice and eccentric life, have made Emily Dickinson a compelling and influential author for well over a century and counting. That may not be something she actually would have wanted. In fact, the reserved Dickinson asked that her poems be destroyed after her death, a request that clearly went ignored. However, Emily Dickinson may have considered that possibility and even made peace with it. In another poem from 1862, she seemingly addresses her potential future readers, writing, This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. The simple news that nature told with tender majesty. Her message is committed to hands I cannot see. For love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcast. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriment, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.